You're listening to Habs Culture, a Montreal Canadiens podcast. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Habs Culture and on Twitter at Habs underscore culture to stay on track with news and updates. Episode 23 of the Habs Culture podcast. Today we're joined by a very, very special guest um, from Sportsnet, Mr. Eric Engels. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, it's a pleasure. I hope you're doing well. This is awesome. You know, we both follow you on Twitter. Um, look, I downloaded Twitter just to get your notifications, if we're being honest here. So go. this is so cool to have you with us. That's very flattering, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> very cool. So the Habs, um, they recently lost in the Stanley Cup final. And we know that you got the chance to go to Tampa to watch Game 5. And we were wondering if the atmosphere there, because they had a full, they had a full barn in Tampa, right? Yeah. So was the atmosphere different than from the Bell Center? Because I know Justin got to go to one of the games. So we're just curious because it's the Stanley Cup Finals team that's probably going to go back to back heading into Game Five. We're just wondering how the atmosphere was there in Tampa. Yeah, it was exceptional. It's everything that you expect, right? You get a full barn, you get the Stanley Cup possibly coming out. Uh, the fans were excited. The outdoor scene was pretty insane. Um, <clears throat> you know, it was somewhat overwhelming, if only for the fact that for the last year and, and change, we've been going to games with nobody in attendance. Um, I could tell you guys that in the Toronto series, when the first opportunity came for 2,500 fans to come to the arena, you know, I remember thinking, I'm not sure what this is going to be like. Will the atmosphere be great? Will it be loud? Will it be exciting? Um, will it really seem as though there's so many people missing? And, you know, outside of all that, I didn't realize how hard it would hit me uh, in being able to attend that game and see that scene play out. Um, going into the arena was a lot of fun. They had people lined up on the streets and, uh, you know, I drove into the garage and people were cheering for me. So I could only imagine what they were doing for the players. And, I'll never forget, really, when, when the players jumped on the ice for warm-up and the ovation that came out of those 2,500 people, it sounded like 20,000. And it was an emotional moment. You know, it was, it was emotional for me personally. I had a tear in my eye, if only for the fact that it was really like the most normal I had felt in 15 months of hearing that kind of interplay. And I knew how much it meant to the players to be able to step on the ice and have that support that they've been missing for so long. And I thought about players like Tyler Toffoli and Josh Anderson and Joel Edmondson who would come to the Canadians or Corey Perry and wanted to experience that Montreal, um, you know, atmosphere and just had been longing for it for so long. And though it wasn't to the full extent that they would have liked it to be, it, I know it meant a ton to them. But for me personally, it was emotional, if only for the fact that it just made me feel normal. And I, I think all of us have been seeking somewhat some normality in our lives for, for a while here uh, with what we've been dealing with the pandemic. So it was amazing in Tampa Bay. It was amazing in Montreal. And I think as we move forward, uh, it's only going to be better. So I'm looking forward to that. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I, I actually got the chance to go to a game as well, which was very fortunate on my end. And that was definitely one of the coolest experiences that I've ever experienced in my lifetime so far. So, um, But you actually brought up the players that Mark Bergevin went out and acquired last offseason, the Joel Edmondson, the Corey Perry, and a few other names there, Tyler Toffoli, Josh Anderson. 
So my question to you is now we're dealing with a completely new off season, a roller coaster of emotions, that's for sure. But if you were to give a letter grade to the transaction, excuse me, the transactions and moves that were made by the Montreal Canadiens this off season, what would that be? That's a good question. And it's the kind of question I'd rather answer when we see these guys come in and how they fit and how they play. Um, You know, you judge the work of the GM based on what's available to him, what the money is that he has to spend. Um, I think, you know, Bergevin was in a bit of a tight spot in terms of what was available to him and also in terms of the money available to him, a contract extension that's due to Kakaniemi uh, and and the RFAs he had to deal with and the deal that he worked out with Yoel uh, Armia, which I think could be a reasonable value deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he did good work. It's not on the level of the work that he did last offseason where he had a lot of money and a lot of players available and a, the circumstances of the pandemic watering down the market uh, and enabling him to sign Toffoli to the deal that he signed him to. Whereas in other years, I think Toffoli would have been looking at something like six years, $36 million. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they got him on a bargain and he ended up leading the team in scoring. I thought the work that Bergevin did last offseason um, and, and the way everything went, the fact that they made the playoffs and the GM award doesn't get voted on until after the second uh, series of the playoffs, you know, I thought he deserved to win. And he got the most first place votes and Lou Lamorello ended up edging him out in the points. But I thought he really did a, a remarkable job. And I don't think any GM did more to improve their team. You know, people forget because they participated in the bubble. They finished 24th place a year mm-hmm. ago. Uh, or however long ago it is now, I'm losing track of the time. But, you know, I thought he did an exceptional job. I thought this last off season, and I don't believe he's done doing the work he's doing, so maybe I'll hold off on giving him a letter grade. Um, You know, he he signed David Savard uh, to a contract that's similar to the one that Joel Edmondson and and Ben Sherratt signed, and I think a lot of people underestimated those two players. And I think a lot of people will underestimate David Savard too because there's not a lot of high-profile offense in any of the three mm-hmm. uh, but I think David Savard certainly helped fill part of the need that's that's left with Shea Weber uh, in the situation that's that's there he's not going to be able to supplant what Weber does on a nightly basis but he is going to solidify um, that right side up top uh, you know in the top four and if he's able to like Edmondson and Sherrod exceed expectations in terms of his consistency uh, he'll prove to be a top four defenseman, whereas in Columbus, I think he was on the bottom pair before he left there and on the bottom pair in Tampa, obviously, on a very deep blue line. You know, my concerns for the Canadians are not necessarily in the players they brought in. I thought Matthew Perot was a sneaky, good kind of signing. Yeah. Um, you know, it's really about when you look at the entire depth chart, you know, it's clear to see that they're a little thinner than they were a year ago. Now, they still have good players littered throughout their lineup. But, you know, if you suffer an injury on defense to a guy like Jeff Petrie, you're going to be in big trouble. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, you know, low risk, high value type of moves that Bergevin already made. I don't think he's done. Like I said, I think he would still like to solidify his defense and the center ice position. And if he's able to do those things between now and the trade deadline, they could prove fruitful in a division that's going to be extremely difficult to make the playoffs in. So if you're a Canadians fan and you're wondering how the Canadians are going to do, We'll see what the roster looks like in September, and we'll see what it looks like uh, around the trade deadline, February, March. And I, I think they have what it takes to be competitive, but 
health is going to be the ultimate determinant because their depth is not quite on the same level as it was a year ago. Absolutely. So with their current roster, knowing what they have now with the additions of Perot and Cedric Paquette, is it safe to say that something like their penalty kill might be a bit weaker due to the fact that Paul Byron's out for the start of the season? There's no Shea Weber, the loss of Phil Deneau. Um, I know there's the additions of Paquette and Perot that might help, but is it safe to say as, as of now that might take a hit more than maybe the power play did last season? I think it's actually a reasonable assumption. I mean, you look at those guys specifically geared towards penalty killing roles. You know, Philip Deneau is obviously an essential player. Shea Weber, an essential player. And Paul Byron, um, who obviously didn't have his best season last year and had a tough time throughout, um, you know, he showed in the playoffs how valuable he can be. And if he can play at that level on a more consistent basis, which I saw that he pledged to do in a real heartfelt message um, through social media, um, that could help account for it. I also think that they found a certain rhythm in the playoffs, penalty killing, where they were exceptional. Uh, and they found a way that they need to play together as a unit. And ultimately, when you don't necessarily have the individual components, like guys like Deneau and Weber and Byron, um, you're going to take a bit of a hit. But you can make up for it if you can prescribe to that team uh, style of, of play and everyone's on the same page. That's ultimately what penalty killing comes down to is everyone on the same page. Does everyone trust that everyone's going to be able to do their own individual job? And then you don't get running around and you get pucks out and things go well. But you know what, Justin, it's a, it's a very reasonable assumption that their penalty kill will struggle a bit versus what it was in the playoffs, but it still has a way to be better than it was during the regular season because I believe for the majority of it, it was somewhere around 20th in the league or 22nd at points. So I think they can do better with that just based on the structure that they have found and their trust that they built in the playoffs and how to do that part of the job. For sure. And considering, you know, the offseason Mark Bergevin had last year and being second in GM for GM of the year, is there... Look, he had his his conference in the end of his year's post conference, his press conference, sorry, and he spoke about the fact that he will honor his final year of the contract. And knowing the moves he made this year or this off season, you know, more depth moves, what do you take of those words that he will honor it? Well, I think you take them uh, at face value. He's got one year left under contract. Uh, in his situation, he's in a negotiation with the owner, Jeff Molson. Um, he's got leverage in terms of what he's been able to build and the way he's rebounded since being afforded the opportunity to create a reset in Montreal. And if you look at the long term, there's a lot of really good prospects that have joined the system. I think a lot of the draft analysts and the prospect analysts would probably concede that the Canadians have a top 10 prospect pool. Um, they've picked more players, I think only the Detroit Red Wings have picked more players than them in the last four seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they've been able to build things up that way. They've accrued a lot of draft picks. They're doing a better job on that end. And they've secured uh, a better development team in the hires they've made at the lower levels. And having a feeder system through the ECHL is going to help. So the future looks bright. Um, the present you go to the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I think a lot of people knew that that was unexpected. But at the same time, I thought 
the Canadians, and I was saying this throughout last year, were a team that was built for the playoffs, and they ended up proving that. It took them four games into the Toronto series to show it. Um, I had certainly written them off after that fourth game. It just looked like this season was going to end um, in a very pandemic way where it seemed like everything kind of went against them throughout the regular season and things didn't really improve and it looked like they were going to go out with a whimper. And I didn't think that was going to um, reflect well on Mark Bergevin's work and what he tried to do and build here. Um, turned it around and obviously now it's, to me, you know, going back even a few weeks before the playoffs and, and what had been clear to me is that Mark Mark Bergevin's future was really in his own hands, I think. Um, you know, if he wants to continue on, I believe there would be an extension available to him for upwards of three years, uh, potentially more. I don't know what he's been able to negotiate and what he wants to do. It really comes down to how much more he wants to be in that position. It's an exceptionally difficult position. He's been in it for nine years. This is his 10th. And the pressure is enormous. And, you know, I remember Mark Bergerman when he first came into the job in 2012, his energy, his excitement, um, his reputation as a, as, a, as a jokester and a prankster and a guy whose sense of humor um, would really carry him in, in terms of just his social demeanor and whatever. I think if you look throughout the years, it's, it's patently obvious to the viewers and the fans of the Canadians that the job has taken a lot out of him. Um, you know, he's, he's aged, he's, um, aged in his tone and the way he carries himself and is a bit more serious and a bit more guard, a lot more guarded, I would suggest. And I think the last year and a half of dealing with the pandemic and everything that came with it and the COVID scares and the COVID shutdown, and it was, it was a lot of stress, you know, for, for anyone. And, um, I think you look at the human element of it and, and a guy who's uh, 56 years old, uh, I believe he just turned 56. If he hasn't already, it's coming very soon. Um, it, it's a lot. You know, he's got to contemplate what he wants to do for his future. I, I can't help but wonder, and this is not with any insight knowledge, I do believe that he's got a contract extension available to him if he wants to sign it. If he doesn't, I'm curious to know, uh, and again, this is just my speculation, if he'd consider staying on as a president of hockey operations and uh, promoting someone to GM, potentially someone that works underneath them already or someone that he'd look to hire. So I think these are the questions that will be explored over the next year as he's only under contract for that amount of time uh, or inevitably we'll get an announcement that he's been extended. Yeah, look, aside the premier of our province, I think he has a job that's very stressful and that a lot of people judge every move that he makes but there was one move this offseason that look we didn't understand a lot and we're not sure if it was an internal decision or the decision of the of the person themselves but Joel Bouchard decided to leave the organization and we just wanted to know if there was something in particular that that he decided to leave because look the rocket last season looked like a team that was going to win the Calder yeah, listen, I can't speak specifically to Joel's intentions because I haven't spoken to Joel. And I, on the day that he held his press conference and joining the Anaheim organization in the minor leagues, um, I was involved in some other press conference, which I can't remember now. The days are all kind of bleeding together here. But, um, you know, I think you look at the decision to 
promote Dominic Ducharme to head coach. And I think Joel could see that the path to where he wants to go was blocked. Um, and especially with the job that Ducharme did in the playoffs, you knew he was going to secure a contract extension, which he did. And I just think he was looking for an opportunity to get to the NHL as quick as possible. Um, and I think he sees a better one in Anaheim. And, I, you know, Mark Bergevin said that he offered him a job to remain on with Laval or join Dominic Ducharme's staff. He chose to go his own direction. I don't think there's acrimony between both parties. Uh, I think Joel realized that his best opportunity was going to fall outside of Montreal once Ducharme got into that position and secured that position for the next few years. And, um, you know, that's, that's life, you know, whether you're in the NHL, the AHL, or you're working in sales or marketing or whatever it is, you need to do what's best for you and look for the best opportunities. And I think Joel did a very good job in bringing Laval to a, a very strong season, albeit against three other teams in a unique situation. Uh, but I also think that the procurement team did a great job adding talent to the American Hockey League roster, both on the professional side, but also on the amateur side and graduating certain prospects. And um, I think whoever's there now will be able to uh, continue on in that job and, and hopefully uh, bring these players along to where they need to get to, because these are crucial years in terms of development. When I talked about, you know, what would be a consensus top 10 prospect pool, a lot of those players will pass through the American Hockey League system, potentially through the ECHL system with Trois-Rivières opening a team. And if you do that stuff right, you're going to make your NHL team a lot better. So I understand that was a tough one for fans to wrap their head around, um, but I really just think it's about opportunity and pursuing opportunity and Joel Bouchard doing what was best for him. Absolutely. And speaking more about the AHL and prospect and the prospect pool that the Habs have at this moment, um, are there any players in particular that you see maybe making the jump to the NHL level this coming season? Names that I have off the top of my head, Jordan Harris, uh, Matthias Norlinder. Are these, are these some guys that have a shot, a legitimate shot at making the team this coming season with some holes to fill? Well, let's start with Matthias Norlander because I think he's got a lot of appeal and a lot of intrigue around his name. I think we know what his assets are. He's an offensive defenseman, a puck-moving defenseman, a lefty who happens to play the right side, which is a position of weakness in the NHL for the Canadians. Yes, they have, you know they signed Chris Weidman to a deal. David Savard has come in. Um, you know they've got another. Uh, they they have Jean Sebastien Dia, who they signed as a defenseman. They're trying to bulk up the right side. But this kid brings certain assets that they don't necessarily have within their roster outside of Jeff Petrie. So I would think he's going to get a very good look in training camp. Whether or not he makes it is going to uh, depend on his adjustment to North American ice, playing against pro hockey players, playing the physical style, and how quickly he moves the puck and navigates and how strong he is. Um, but he's coming here with a great opportunity and the very worst, he'll return to Europe or he'll make a decision to sign on with the American Hockey League team. I know that he's got a European out clause. That's kind of standard with contracts that come with players who have been in Sweden and come over. Uh, I don't think he's put a hard ultimatum to the Canadians. I think if he comes here and doesn't necessarily earn a spot out of camp, but the promise is such that he really makes some noise and that he could be the next guy up if he's knocking on the door, that will create a decision for him and, and we'll see what he decides. Um, Jordan Harris decided to go back to school. 
I know Mark Murphy said that he remains committed to the Montreal Canadiens. I know Jordan Harris will tell people close to him he remains committed to the Montreal Canadiens. At the end of the day, when he finishes this season, he'll have the opportunity uh, at Northeastern to choose which NHL team he'd like to go to and sign with. So I, I think it's anything but a fait accompli that he will be with the Canadians. We'll see where that goes and we'll see how the Canadians view it. If they really truly feel that he is committed or if they feel that they've got a player that is on the rise that has a mobility and a skating stride and NHL potential and potentially some value uh, in a trade, they may have to go that way if they feel that he's not going to sign. Um, I think the more interesting guy and the guy that everyone should have circled is Ryan Paling, obviously. And I think the discourse around Paling over the last year or two has been somewhat ridiculous in the fan base. I think, you know, everyone saw what he did in his first game. I don't think anyone expected that he's going to be this prolific, crazy, goal-scoring, super elite centerman uh, just because he played in one meaningless game at the end of the season that Toronto iced a backup goalie and so did Montreal, and the game didn't mean anything to either team. And I'm not taking away from his performance. He played a great game and showed what he could do. Um, but, you know, people forget that the next year he came to training camp and he had an excellent training camp and was doing great and was on his way to winning the spot over Nick Suzuki that ended up being Nick Suzuki's spot on the fourth line. And he got concussed in Quebec City. And here's the part where... I think it is hard for people to understand that, you know, nowadays you have 18 and 19 and 20 year olds graduating to the NHL more than ever before. And when a player shows that promise and is knocking on the door and is right there and all of a sudden he gets injured and Nick Suzuki leapfrogs over him and Yasperi Kokaniemi coming off a good rookie season, but a tough end to the season and then coming back, you know, I would understand if Ryan Paling was kind of thinking to himself, man, like, I did great. I got hurt. And now all of a sudden, these guys are jumping ahead of me and I'm stuck in the AHL and I don't want to be there. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a growth process and it's a maturation process. And I think, you know, this generation of players who expect to play in the NHL really quickly can be set back by the disappointment of being so close and having it kind of fall out of your hands through circumstances that are beyond your control. And then, you know, there's a veteran-laden group in Laval that was brought in and he's got to earn his stripes. And, you know, he didn't play his best coming off the concussion, which I think is normal. And everyone was looking and saying, well, is this guy a bust? He was drafted in the first round and this and that, like, this is a normal progression for this player. And, you know, he went back to Laval with a different attitude last year. He played a very strong season and, he's going to work for the opportunity to join the Canadians potentially as a centerman. And if he has to, as a left winger, and I think he's got the body and the smarts and the playmaking ability to be a, a, a good uh, middle six, bottom six forward. And if it doesn't happen immediately out of the gate, it won't be because he's a failure. Uh, it'll just be because the team has its depth up front and he's going to have to earn his way and find his way to get in. And once he does get in, he's going to have to show what he can do to stick. And if he's able to do those things, he's going to take the next step in his development. And I just think this has been a normal curve. You know, I had people asking me last year in the bubble, what's the story with Paling? I had people ask me throughout this playoffs, you know, why didn't they give Paling a look? Although we know that his season ended with wrist surgery, uh, like, 
at the end of the day, he's barely 22 years old and on his way. And I think he's going to be a good player and he's headed in the right direction. And so if people allow that to take its natural course, I think they'll be surprised that I, I think he could be a player that helps the Canadians in the near future. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I think he can really be a player to watch, especially that I didn't name him when I was talking about the prospects, but he did have some serious promise um, in, in the AHL last season, and he proved that. But another centerman that I wanted to talk about that you mentioned very briefly is Jesperi Kotkaniemi. Now, my partner and I are very big fans of Jesperi Kotkaniemi. We believe in him a lot. We think he has the talent at that level to produce and be a very good hockey player. However, we do think that he gets he gets the short end of the stick sometimes and he doesn't get rewarded for his play when he's proved to put points up on the board and not only points, but big goals. So I guess my question to you is, do you think that he's being treated properly and do you think that there that there's another way to go about um, his situation here in Montreal. Yeah, listen, I, I'm kind of on both sides of the coin here. I, I believe that Jesperi Kokniemi uh, was deserving of more regular line mates instead of having 20 different combinations shift through his line throughout the season. Um, but ultimately, coaches don't set their lineups based on those factors. You know, they set the best lines that they feel give them the best opportunity to win. Uh, they go with duos that they believe prove successful and then add a third guy and rotate one in. Um, I think Kakaniemi has shown all the things that you just said. He's got the ability. Uh, he's got the smarts. He's got clutch goal scoring ability. He can make plays. Uh, he's versatile. He's big. He's physical. His skating has improved dramatically. But there's a lot of room for him to grow and become a better, more consistent player. And sometimes when you're not being given what you think you've earned or deserved, you got to go out and take it. And I think that's kind of the message to Kakaniemi right now. Dano is gone. Uh, the buffer is gone. Uh, and there is an opportunity with depth that the Canadians have on the wings to build a line around him if he's going to play consistently in his physical, fast playmaking and goal scoring manner and if he can do those things and come to work every day with that approach and have his confidence remain intact which is a challenging thing to do for a player his age because yes he has three seasons under his belt but he's still only 21 years old you know there's there's a lot of room for this player to grow and ultimately he'll learn just like every young person learns at a certain end no one is going to give you anything no one is just waiting around to hand you what you want you need to go out and take it. And I think that was the message to KK from the coaching staff and the general manager. You want your ice time. You want your line mates. You want your power play time. Take it. And we're here to give it to you if you're going to take it. And that means that he's got to grow up a bit. He's got to work. You know, I think every player his age comes in thinking they're working really hard until they get around a player like Brendan Gallagher or Shea Weber uh, or some of the guys that are largely responsible for the Canadians going as far as they did in the playoffs in terms of their ethic, their attitude, the, the way they prepare themselves, what they put into their body, how they train in the offseason. And there's a wake-up call for each one of these players that comes as the more, more experience they take on and the more they're around players like that. And they realize, you know, I, I thought I was working hard, but I can work a lot harder. And 
Nathan McKinnon's a really good example of that. You know, you look at his first three seasons, the numbers are not particularly prolific. He started working with a sports psychologist. He started changing his diet. He's rigorous about it. His training is through the charts now, you know, training with Sidney Crosby for the years, realizing how much harder he had to work. And he said himself, you know, like, I thought I was working hard, but there was, uh, you know, X, Y, Z levels to get to in that regard to be that much better. So if you spare Kakaniemi wants to take on that type of attitude, there's no question in my mind how successful this player can be. You know, I look at guys like Anzi Kopitar, Ryan O'Reilly. Um, I'm not saying that KK is those guys, but he has the potential to be that style of player. And uh, he's got a good attitude too, and he's a good kid, and he's fun to be around. I find he's gotten more and more serious with every year that he's been here, and he needs to continue on that path. He can't just stop and, and hope and expect that, okay, here I am four years in, and now it's my turn, and, and give me this and give me that. The world doesn't work that way, and the hockey world definitely doesn't work that way. And I think the coaching staff and the GM and everyone else in the organization has made it abundantly clear to him. And and I just want to – the last thing I'll say on his topic is just I do understand. There were times the coaching staff could have done more to get more out of him. There's no – it's a two-way street. They know that. And if he wants to feel that way, he should. And I hope he's completely pissed off about sitting out – in the final game of the season and sitting out to start the playoffs and the line shuffle that happened throughout the season with him and whether where the trust was and where he felt it should be. I hope it's I hope he's fuming about it because you got to hope that it motivates him to be the player that he can be because he was picked as high as he was for a reason. He has those abilities and I do believe he's going to be a really good player. And staying a bit on his topic, he's a player who's had a lot of ups and downs recently and now he's rfa we were just wondering because a few episodes ago we were questioning what he would get years wise and aav we compared it a bit to galchenyuk who got a two-year 5.6 million dollar bridge deal and we were wondering because of mark bergeron's comments stating the fact that he'll have the opportunity of getting that second line center role is there a bit of leverage on kotkaniemi's side knowing that he'll have the opportunity to fill in that role and maybe try and get a bit more money out of it? You know, and it's a really good question. You know, if you're in his shoes, maybe you want to sign a one-year deal instead of looking at a two- or three-year deal. Um, it's all a question of what gets offered. He's not arbitration eligible, which takes the hammer kind of out of his hands. And I think they will come to a similar deal to the one that Galchenyuk signed. I was thinking, as you were saying it before you, and said it, the two years, 5.5, somewhere in that neighborhood where he gets paid, you know, two and then 3.5 or 2.5 and then three or whatever it is, I think that would be a natural progression. I think the Canadians would like to be able to make a deal with him that's two or three years long. Um, I think if you're a Cockney and you want to bet on yourself and say, I'd like to sign for one year, uh, that could be a leverage point that he, that he goes to. But the truth is that within his position, the numbers that he's put up, um, he doesn't have leverage on a long-term deal and he doesn't have much leverage on a short-term deal if he signs a one-year deal and the canadians agree to that it's going to be something in the neighborhood of two 2.5 million dollars i think and anything more um he should he should walk away laughing and, and say okay uh this is not a bad number for one year and i'm going to prove that i'm worth a lot more and we'll get a long-term deal done or a deal that locks me to free agency or whatever it is uh, at a point where he'd be arbitration eligible and have a bit more of a hammer in his hands. Everything comes down to leverage. 
Uh, you brought it up yourself. Leverage is the key word. And right now the leverage is in favor of the Canadians. So we'll see how that deal gets worked out. I'm sure it will before we get to training camp. For sure. And we just have a couple more questions for you. Um, I, on this podcast, have been, and not even on this podcast, but just in general, huge, huge fan of Jake Evans and his play. And I feel that a lot of the time he's he's not given the credit he deserves for what he's able to do at both ends of the ice. Um, do you have a take on Jake Evans? Do you have certain feelings towards Jake Evans? Do you think that he's a player who can really f- flourish in this system and be the potential set in stone 3C or even challenge the 2C spot? Yeah, I don't know about challenging the 2C spot, but I think, you know, the, the I think Jake Evans, here's what I respect about Jake Evans. Um, you know, he's a seventh round pick. He knew exactly what he needed to work on in order to make it to the NHL. He's got a really smart mind for the game. He His skating has improved so dramatically, which was the key thing for him to work on in order to take the jump. Um, he's had some devastating injuries, uh, head injuries specifically since joining the Canadians. Uh, you know, I was at the first game he played at the rookie tournament where he got stretchered off. Um, last year in the bubble, he suffered another head injury where he was pasted into the boards by, was it Brandon Tanev? Something like that. One of the Pittsburgh guys in that first series. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we saw what happened with Shifley. You know, he's got to learn from that stuff. Obviously, most of it out of his control. He didn't go out and hit himself in the head. Uh, But he needs to be able to be stronger and faster uh, and have his wits about him to ensure that he doesn't get into those vulnerable positions as often as he already has. His offensive upside, I would agree, is probably higher than most people would expect. But, you know, Philip Deneau is gone. There's a vacancy in terms of taking on those responsibilities. He's got some competition beneath him in Perot and Paquette, although he's above them in the packing order in terms of what he can do within that role. And um, his speed is his best friend. And if he keeps getting better at face-offs and is able to take on some of those responsibilities, which will obviously most likely be shared between him and Nick Suzuki, um, you know, the, the potential – is, is higher than most people would realize. He's a smart player, and I think he's a smart person who realizes what the opportunity is that's in front of him and what he needs to do to seize it. And I expect that he'll come back to camp and make a real bid to uh, not have people forget about Philip Deneau, but ease the burden of losing that player mm-hmm. and all he did for the Canadians. And I, I think about Deneau when he first came to the Canadians, and I think there's no reason to doubt that Jake Evans could be that type of player right now and evolve into the type of player that Philip Deneau is. He may not end up being as good. Um, and I think a lot of people underestimated Deneau's offensive potential too, especially as they watch this season and the role that he assumed, because uh, he can put up points. Um, I think Evans is in a similar position. And as I go through the lineup and kind of build lines in my own head, I could see him playing on a line with Brendan Gallagher and Josh Anderson. Uh, and yep. that would be, you know, I think the way the Canadians are structured, you asked me if he'd be the 2C, you know, the thing, I think when I look at the way the Canadians are structured, I don't see massive separation between their second line and their third line. Uh, I, I believe the roles will be slightly different, but, you know, I, I, when I build the lines in my head, 
I'll, I'll, I'll shoot them out for you guys. You let me know what you think. Cool. Um, Jonathan Drouin is coming back. Yeah. I think it would be extremely compelling to see Jonathan Drouin play with Nick Suzuki and Cole Caulfield. Uh, I'd love to see what two players of that type of talent can do with Drouin's playmaking ability. I think that would be putting Drouin in a position to succeed in a way that he hasn't so far in Montreal on a more consistent basis. I think it would make him feel good about coming back and feel uh, confident and, and have that mentality that he wants to have, especially with what he dealt with. And I, I don't know specifically what he dealt with. I'm not going to get into the speculation on that. But that line to me is intriguing. It could be a bit of a one-and-done line. I don't see a strong cycle presence like a guy like Josh Anderson. But it really intrigues me to see what uh, Caulfield and Suzuki and Drouin would do together with the talent level between those th- three guys. Um, I could see a second line of Hoffman, Toffoli, and Kakaniemi. I think you know it would force Kakaniemi to play a 200-foot game, which he's capable of doing. It would force him to play physically and fast. Uh, but it would also give him a couple of goal scorers next to him. And, and uh, I think he can make the plays to make that work. I could see Anderson with with uh, Evans and Gallagher. And I could see a, a fourth line that has uh, Lekkonen, Perot, and and potentially Pale, uh, and Armia and Armia on it. Right. Uh, and then you've got Byron and you've got Peckett and you've got Paling. And we'll see what shakes out and who's healthy and whatever it is. But I, I think... That would be an interesting dynamic up front. So that's kind of how I see Evans. And I could see that third line being not necessarily a a defense first line, but a real physical, fast checking line that will be a presence in front of the net and and create kind of havoc. And it's that would be an interesting dynamic for me, those four lines. Absolutely. So, Eric, before we let you go, um, I have a question. It's a bit off topic. Um, when When I got Twitter, my goal was to try and get on one of your mailbags. There was a few of them, and I got on one of them. It was in 2020. Yeah. I got on one of them in 2020, so it was prior to the pandemic, and I asked you a question about compliance buyouts. And at the time, you know, the Canadians had Carl Alsner, and there were some teams that were crunched up against the cap. But now, due to the pandemic, um, it was even more in question if teams would be able to use that to their advantage. And obviously, now that we know that it didn't happen and some teams were forced to move money by receiving nothing through trade. Um, my question to you now, since I, we have you in person, would be if there's any chatter or talk about a luxury tax that would ever come in into effect into the National Hockey League, because we know the NBA has one. And now that we just watched Tampa Bay go through a LTIR loophole and play over the cap, would there ever be something like a luxury tax that would come into effect, especially because now there's some reports that the cap could stay flat for the next five to seven years. Uh, I don't know about five to seven years. And I'm not, I haven't read any reports about that. Um, I think at least for the next three years, we're looking at a flat cap, but um, we'll see what the advertising revenue brings in with jerseys, uh, adding ads now. And, um, you know, with the US TV deals coming into effect and the different events that they plan to do, uh, Seattle coming in, obviously, whether or not expansion relocation becomes an issue over the next few years. I think there are streams for the NHL um, from a revenue standpoint to recoup what they've lost and potentially gain, uh, and the cap could go up after those three years. Um, luxury tax is an interesting idea. Uh, it's certainly 
unlikely to come from the owner side and the CBA has been extended recently. So I don't, I don't think it's a discussion point right now. Uh, but I do believe that moving forward and as we get into the next CBA negotiations, which I hope are really a long way off, because I hate talking about this stuff and it's boring as sin and nobody wants to go through another <laughs> lockout or shutdown. I mean, that would kill the league, especially given the circumstances of the last two seasons. Um, but I think, you know, at a, at a certain point, the PA has to broach that subject with the owners and see if they can get that accomplished. Um Compliance buyouts, I don't think we're going down that road ever again. I know the owners don't have an appetite for it. I don't think the players are big fans of it either. And um, we'll see. You know, right now we have cost certainty in terms of what the CBA is and what it'll be over the next few years. And I think that was essential given the circumstances the NHL was dealing with and returning to play and all that stuff. And labor peace is, is pretty crucial um, given where they find themselves and the billions they lost within the pandemic. So um, it's an interesting question, but I think it's one that's only going to be re- revisited in a few years from now. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate the the answer. You know, it's it's something that I always asked myself, but there was never anyone that I could ask. And I think this was the perfect opportunity. So I appreciate you answering. And I think that's it for now. I think that's all we had to ask. Yep. So on this note, Eric, we really, really appreciate you joining us. It really was an absolute that. pleasure. I think we really enjoyed this. It was awesome. So we just want to thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, guys. You guys got you guys got the only off-season thing that I've done so far. Cool. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to do with you guys and keep up the good work and, and keep plugging away and get your dreams accomplished and um, look forward to doing it again sometime. Appreciate that so much. Thank you so much, Eric. My pleasure.